We're moving on from Jeremiah to Ezekiel this morning. The third of the major prophets, third out of four when it comes to the latter prophets, for in the Hebrew Bible, the latter prophets include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the Twelve. And after we finish up Ezekiel and the book of the Twelve, then we'll be taking a break from our Old Testament survey. We'll have covered the Torah and the Nevi'im, the prophets. And that will just leave us with the writings in the Old Testament survey, which we'll do at a future point, as long as I don't change my mind or get distracted by other studies. Let's begin this morning with a word of prayer. Bow your heads with me. Father, we could never thank you enough for giving us the Holy Bible. And Lord, we thank you that we have it and are able to read it. And yet, so often we get so busy, we are negligent, we don't value your word the way that we should, and that's been reflected in our lives in many different ways. But Lord, we're thankful for this morning that we can gather together and be encouraged to have the book of Ezekiel opened up and to have it explained in a way that will encourage us to to read all that you have given to us in this amazing book. Lord, we pray that you'd help me as a teacher to be able to communicate your thoughts, your words, to not insert myself, but to really put the focus upon what you have spoken. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us all ears to hear what you have spoken, that we would not be slow of faith, but that we would be full of faith, and that we would be fully convinced that all that you have revealed is true and good, and may our meditation upon it yield great fruit in our lives. We pray that you'd be with us not just during the Sunday school hour, but all morning long, and that you'd bless our fellowship, bless us as we greet one another as we carry the love of Christ in our hearts to one another in all of our actions and thoughts and words. We give you thanks for making us a family and for bringing us together in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So open up your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. we starting there in chapter 1. And you see on the top of the handout that the book of Ezekiel, it starts just like Well, it starts and its purpose is just like the other major prophets. And the book of Ezekiel therefore explains the judgment of God on Israel during this time of the exile and reveals what God's plan is for her glorious future, the kingdom of God as it is predicted in the prophets. And so this Exile, the judgment of God that has come upon the nation of Israel, is once again the major backdrop. And as we're moving from Isaiah, who looked ahead over a hundred years into the future for Judah's exile, but who lived during the time of the northern kingdom's fall, then we saw Jeremiah was the prophet who was really the last warning leading up to the fall of Jerusalem and the exile in Babylon. Now Ezekiel is the prophet who is living among the exiles and who is truly an exilic prophet because his ministry starts in Babylon or south of Babylon. 
by the river Kibar, as he says there in the land of the Chaldeans in chapter 1, verse 3. So let's take a look then at the authorship and date. As we've mentioned, Ezekiel is the author. His book is named after him, and his name means strengthened by God. And that corresponds very well with the ministry that God calls him to. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We'll go ahead and read the introduction to the book here. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So we see here that he is a priest, mentions that there in verse 3, so he's a Levite, and that this is in the 30th year that is where he dates this prophecy, and the question is the 30th year of what? And what most interpreters believe, and what I think is the correct interpretation, is that it's the 30th year of Ezekiel's life. So when Ezekiel was turning 30, that's when he had this call to ministry in this vision that he saw among the exiles in the land of the Chaldeans. So 30 years old was when a Levite would have begun his priestly service in the temple. And if that's the right reading of the dating here, then we see that Ezekiel, not being in Jerusalem, but being among the exiles, he's not able to serve as a priest in the temple, and so God calls him to be a prophet among the exiles. And when he would have started his priestly ministry is when he starts his prophetic ministry. That's very interesting to me. And because Ezekiel had been preparing his whole life to be a priest before he was taken captive and deported to the land of the Chaldeans, therefore he is very familiar with the temple. He has a lot of interest in the temple, and his book, therefore, has more to do with the temple than the other prophets. Of course, Isaiah is in Jerusalem, and the temple is the backdrop for some of the things going on there, and you've got Jerusalem in a central focus in Jeremiah's book, and the fall of Jerusalem, and the fall of the temple, and it's all there, but Ezekiel not only focuses on the destruction of the temple, but he also focuses on the future restoration of the temple, and this is probably because of his Levitical background, and God chose him for this purpose because the book has a heavy emphasis on the temple that we'll talk more about as we continue. Now, chapters 1 through 3, then, are the call and the commission of Ezekiel. And you have an extended introduction here with a really amazing opening chapter. Chapter 1 is the glory of the Lord. Now, this is very similar to Isaiah's call to ministry. Remember, in Isaiah chapter 6 that Isaiah saw the heavens opened and he saw the glory of the Lord on the throne but the angels, the seraphim, standing around the throne and crying out, holy, holy, holy. Well, that heavenly throne room of God that Isaiah saw was kind of like seeing God in his temple. But Ezekiel, he's not in Jerusalem. He's not there at the temple. And so the vision that Ezekiel sees of the glory of God is different. 
It's the mobile throne of God. It's the chariot throne of God that Ezekiel sees in chapter 1. And this is a great message to the exiles that God's able to be the Lord on his throne in Jerusalem, but he's not confined to Jerusalem. The Lord is able to go throughout the whole heaven, throughout the whole earth, wherever he wants to go. The angels are able to carry the glory of God even as far as the exiles and that God is with the exiles in Babylon and that the Lord is sovereign over the nations and the king of Babylon. And so the glory of the Lord revealed to Ezekiel in exile has some differences from the way that the glory of the Lord was revealed in Jerusalem to Isaiah. But it's still the same glorious Lord and it is an amazing chapter, one of my favorites in the book. I was tempted this morning just to do a whole message on Ezekiel chapter 1, but no, we're going to follow our normal plan and hit the whole book here. And then what I want you to notice also in these opening chapters is that the Lord has a special title for Ezekiel throughout the book, and you see that there in your notes, that he is called the Son of Man. Over and over again, 93 times in the book, Ezekiel is addressed by God as Son of Man. And this, of course, catches our attention because Son of Man is the most common title that Jesus Christ uses to describe himself when we come to the New Testament. And so there's the the question, well, does Ezekiel have some connection, therefore, to the ministry of Christ? Is there some kind of typology going on here? And no, not so much that the Son of Man address in the book of Ezekiel is not the major background for Jesus identifying himself as the Son of Man. But instead, you remember as we were going through the Gospel of Mark, that it's Daniel chapter 9 and the vision of God's throne and the Son of Man coming before the throne to receive a kingdom in the Messianic passage in Daniel 7. I think I said 9, but I meant 7. In Daniel 7, And so Daniel is more of the background for Jesus' title. And when we come to Ezekiel and him being called son of man, this has a different purpose, this has a different goal, and that is that son of man is a Semitic terminology for having a certain characteristic. Remember when we come to the New Testament that Jesus refers to James and John as sons of thunder, and that's because they had a thundering personality. And so here, Son of Man is saying, well, you have the characteristic of a man. And this is in contrast to the glory of God. That the glory of God is so far above, and that Ezekiel, as the prophet, is just a human. In fact, that's the way some commentators recommend translating Son of Man here, is if God were saying, human, human being, let me talk to you. And it's just a way of elevating God and putting us in our place as God addresses us. Look at it in chapter 2, verse 1. So as he sees the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, as it's described at the end of chapter 1, I really like that, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So you get this idea that this is not actually seeing the glory of the Lord, it's seeing the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And what he's describing is just the appearance of the likeness because the glory of the Lord is so high and so awesome and so holy that you can't actually see the glory of the Lord, you can see the likeness and you can describe the appearance of the likeness. I just think that's fascinating. But then in chapter 2, verse 1, he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And so you could read that like this. Human, 
stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And saying God is not a human being, but we are bound by our humanity and we need to humble ourselves before the glorious power of Jehovah. Now, Son of Man continues throughout the book. I gave you some references there. You see in chapter 2, he continues to use that address in verse 3, verse 6, verse 8. And this is just a small listing of the 93 times that it's used in the book. A title of humility in contrast to God's exalted status. The other thing I want you to see here in the opening chapters is in chapter 3, verses 16 through 21 where the comparison between a prophet and a watchman is used. This is something that is repeated later in the book. Not only is it here in chapter 3, but it's also in chapter 33, at the start of another major section of Ezekiel's book. And the prophetic role here is described like that of a watchman. Let's go ahead and read that. Chapter 3, verse 16, starting there. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand." But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. So you see that as God's spokesman, the prophet has responsibility in order to bring the message of warning to people, and that if the prophet fails to bring the warning to people, well then he has a measure of guilt for the death of that person because it was his job to warn, and he didn't warn. Kind of like if you were driving down the street and there was a sign that said, you know, bridge out, then you can stop and not go across the bridge and save your life. But if the guy just decided not to show up for work that day and decided not to put up the sign that the bridge was out, well, it's kind of his fault that you drove off the bridge. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because we all are sinners and we know that we're not supposed to sin and so we have a conscience. It's a moral situation versus a non-moral situation, but still, you get the idea. It's our responsibility to, to warn. And I say our responsibility because I think that is a proper application, that we are a prophetic people and that we have been entrusted with the Word of God. The Word of God is full of warnings for those who are on the way to destruction. The book of Proverbs puts it this way. It says, hold them back who are on their way to destruction. So we have a responsibility to proclaim the truth, to warn the wicked, talk about coming judgment, and that if we don't, if there's someone who professes to be a Christian but has no genuine saving faith in their life and we just pat them on the back and say, you're doing great, you're a wonderful Christian, then we have responsibility for their final judgment when they stand before God and he says, I never knew you. And God will say, well, why didn't you tell him that he was not saved? Why did you not warn him about the judgment that he was going to face. 
So a very powerful, a very sobering passage here about the prophetic role. We are not prophets in the same way as Ezekiel, but I do think there's valid application there. All right, the other thing that I want to note about Ezekiel that's not on your handout is that Ezekiel is not a poet. You have your Bible there open to Ezekiel 3, and you see there's no poetry. You continue throughout the book, and it's all written in prose. So the previous prophets, and most of the minor prophets, they write in poetry, Hebrew poetry with poetic parallelism. But you don't have that hardly at all in Ezekiel's book. A little bit there in chapter 19, the lament for the prince of Tyre, which is put in poetic form. But almost the whole book is prose. That's different. That's unique to the book of Ezekiel among the latter prophets. This non-poetical book, a book of prose, it is a picture book that Ezekiel, more than any of the other prophets, uses his actions and his life to communicate the truth of God in picture form, in, in illustrations, lived out sermons, so to speak. For example, in chapter 4, he symbolizes the siege of Jerusalem by laying a brick before him and putting siege works up against it and building a siege wall. So he's, he's building this model of the siege of Jerusalem as a communication to the exiles that Jerusalem is not going to stand, but it is going to fall. And that brings up an important point, that I mentioned that this is an exilic prophet, but the exile didn't start in 586 B.C., 586 B.C. was the destruction of Jerusalem, but Ezekiel starts prophesying in 593 B.C. If, if we understand the dating of his prophecies correctly, then he started prophesying before the final destruction, and that he himself had gone into exile in 597, because you'll remember I told you last week that the exiles from Jerusalem was not all in one shot. But it started in 605, there was another one in 597, and then the final exile was in 586. And it wasn't until 586 that the city was actually completely destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Before that, they had sieged the city and they'd given up and they'd taken captives and they, they hadn't completely destroyed it. So keep in mind that the exile, the, the fall of Jerusalem happened in stages, and that Ezekiel was taken in the second deportation in 597. And so that's why he's prophesying here at the beginning of his book that Jerusalem is going to be sieged again, and that it's going to be taken, as opposed to what the false prophets were saying, that Jerusalem was inviolable, that God's temple was in Jerusalem and Jerusalem would never fall. And so you see by that that while Jeremiah is an older contemporary of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is about a generation younger, they do have overlap in their ministry. Jeremiah was many miles away, hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem, and Jeremiah began prophesying in 627 and ended in 585. And you see the dates there for Ezekiel beginning in 593 and going to 571. So from 593 to 585, they were both prophesying at the same time. And then Ezekiel's ministry went on a little bit longer because he was a, a younger man and started later. I just want to give you the, the sense of where Jeremiah and Ezekiel are in relationship to each other. So Jeremiah in Jerusalem, a little bit earlier. Ezekiel among the exiles, a little bit later, 
but both in the context of the final days of Jerusalem and what came after those final days, especially in Ezekiel's book. All right, so that is the authorship and the date of Ezekiel. Any questions about that? Then I want to move on to the outline, and we'll go ahead and put the outline that we have been using for our series from Swindoll's series on Old Testament survey. Here he's got it in four parts on your outline that I handed out to you. I've got it in three parts. You can certainly separate chapters one through three into its own section as Swindoll does. Or for simplicity's sake, you can just have a three-part outline as I gave you where you've got judgment on Judah, judgment on the nations, and then restoration of God's people. And so that's the pattern. Starts with Judah, goes on to all the nations, and then you've got the restoration after that. And this is a similar pattern that we have in all of the prophets. That the prophets, they talk a lot about Israel and Judah and God's judgment. But then the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all have a large section of their book that deals with God's judgment on the nations. That God is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of all the earth. And therefore, his sovereignty extends over all of the earth, and he can declare judgment on the sinful nations. Now, in this section here on judgment on the nations, you see I like that, all nations answer to God. The focus is on two in particular. Just like Jeremiah and Isaiah, it covers all of the major players in and around Israel at that time, and each one tends to focus on different players. Well, the book of Ezekiel focuses in on two different nations, on Tyre and Egypt. And we'll talk more about Tyre and why it gets attention and focus when we get to some of the the difficult interpretive issues in the book. But you see, it's got a rather long section on the restoration of God's people, which is similar to Isaiah. Isaiah 40 through 66 is all about God's restoration, his future plan, the future glory. And here you see We've got 16 chapters in Ezekiel's book on that subject. And notice here, it's God's glory returning as God's glory had departed. So the judgment is God's glory departs. The restoration is God's glory returns. And therefore, God's glory is a major theme in the book of Ezekiel. And that's the first one that I've put on the handout, which we'll get to here next. That's a good transition. So let's take a look at the major themes in the book of Ezekiel. And the first one is the glory of God. And I put a definition for the glory of God on your handout. It says, the outward expression of the inward excellence of Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of Israel. So the glory is the manifestation. It's the expression of God's invisible attributes. That's the idea of glory. And the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, actually has a relation to this idea of weightiness, that it's very heavy. And so it's the heavy impression that the manifestation of God's excellence makes upon you. It kind of has that effect in its terminology. It's the effect that it has on you when you see, when you experience, when you feel the weight of God's glory. And this, of course, ties in with chapter 1 
as we talked about, the chariot throne of God, the glory of God, the likeness of that that tries to describe the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and that that throne of God is not restricted to Jerusalem, but that it is a chariot, and he rides through the heavens, he rides through the clouds throughout the whole earth like lightning with his, with his glorious presence, showing that God is with the exiles and that God is sovereign among the nations as well. So the glory of God also, therefore, as you see, is highly related to the temple. It's God's glory that departs from the temple And it's God's glory that returns to the temple. This goes all the way back, of course, to the books of Moses, where the book of Exodus was about the glory of God entering into the tabernacle and the glory of God dwelling with his people, Israel. We often think of the book of Exodus, we just think of the first half, the judgments, the plagues on Egypt and going across the sea, the Red Sea. And that's... that's, Half of the book, yes, but the other half of the book is about entering into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai and that Israel becomes unique and special among all the peoples because God's glory actually dwells with the people of Israel in a tent, a house that they had built for him to live among them. And here we find that the tragedy is that the glory departs. The glory of God that has been dwelling with the people of Israel since the days of Moses, 800 years of history there, that now that's over because of God's judgment on Judah. And you see how serious the covenant breach is by the people of Israel that God is saying, I'm no longer going to dwell among you. I'm going to remove my glorious presence. So let's take a look at that. You see it's in chapters 8 through 11 that the glory departs. I want to focus especially on chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, and I hope you'll read the whole book on your own, just highlighting a few things here for you to take notice of as you read through Ezekiel. You see in 11, 23 and 24 that the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. This references back to chapter 1. This is the vision that he saw in chapter 1 of the cherubim and the wheels and the throne of God above this expanse. And he says, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. That's interesting. The, The mountain that is on the east side of the city. That's significant, where the glory of God departed from, and we'll see that it is going to return in a similar way. The glory of the Lord is going to return, and this, of course, is paralleled in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of the Lord. He departed from Jerusalem, but he's going to be coming back to Jerusalem in his second coming. There's a lot of symbolism that's going on here, connecting the old covenant and the new covenant glory of the Lord. All right, so that's the most of what I wanted to say on the glory of God. You can read about its returning in chapters 40 through 46. And so Isaiah, when he's talking about God, he focuses on holiness. Remember, Isaiah had that special title for God, the Holy One of Israel. that is used in other places, but Isaiah may well have coined it, and he uses it the most. So Isaiah focuses on the holiness of God. 
Jeremiah, some people think that his focus when he's talking about the attributes of God is on God's sovereignty, that is that God is in control of the events of history and that God accomplishes all of his purposes and that no one can stop what God has determined to happen. So holiness in Isaiah, sovereignty in Jeremiah, and then glory in Ezekiel would be some of the unique emphases in their book. So let's go on to the second theme in the book of Ezekiel, and that is God's self-revelation and his effectual self-revelation, that his self-revelation is going to lead to a recognition that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is the only true and living God. Seventy-three times in the book of Ezekiel, he says, God says, then they will know that I am the Lord. And the Lord being the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, as how we think it was probably pronounced. So they will know that God is laying out history. God is acting in history. God is revealing himself through the prophets, like Ezekiel, for a purpose. And his purpose is, is that the whole world, Israel and all the nations, will know that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, he is who he is. He is the great I am. And this is accomplished through predictive prophecy, that God tells us what's going to happen, and then God brings that to pass in a way that is completely unique among all so-called gods in the world, so that he demonstrates through his prophets, through his word, through his predictive word, that he is the one who exists and that he is God over all. So let's take a look at some of the examples of that. This is a very similar idea to what we have in Isaiah, that in Isaiah 40 through 66, it starts off in those opening chapters of the Book of Comfort, talking about how God challenges all the nations to bring forth evidence that their gods are real, that they can predict what's going to happen in the future, that they can bring things to pass, and that they can't, and that God is the only one who can tell what the purpose of history is and what the plan of history is and what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. And so he puts all other gods in their place as nothings, as mere empty idols, and he exalts himself through the power of his word, the predictive prophecy in Scripture. So that theme is also very strong here in the book of Ezekiel. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. I think this is the first time this is used in the book. And there's two ways that Israel learns about God's supreme existence, and they learn not to worship idols. One is through his word of judgment, and the other is through his promised restoration. So in 5.13, it's the judgment. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them. And that is a summary of everything that he's been saying in the chapter up to this point. How is it going to happen? Well, God says exactly how it's going to happen in verses 1 through 12. And then when it happens, they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. So the goal of this judgment, or at least one goal or a major goal of the judgment, is to reveal the truth of God's existence and his power, that he alone is worthy of worship. 
Look at chapter 6, verse 7, same page for me. Continuing on with God's judgments, and he says, The slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I am Jehovah God. Same thing in verse 10. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. So you see, what God says, then it happens, and then you know. Okay, very powerful evidence. Same thing in verses 13 and 14 in chapter 7, and, and that's just the beginning of the examples. As I said, there's 73 times that this is used, and so I'm just giving you the beginning examples of God revealing himself through his prophecies of judgment, and then those prophecies coming true, just as God said. However, that's not the only way that God reveals himself to Israel, and we come to this book of restoration, then you have a large number of promises that are also going to reveal God as the true and living God in the salvation of Israel. So come with me to chapter 34. I wish apologists would use this evidence of prophecy more. It seems to be one of God's favorite lines of argument for his supreme existence and for his reality. When we live in a time of pluralism, we live a time of subjectivism, and everyone thinks that religions are all made up, they're all the same, you can worship God however you want. Why don't we get back to some of this biblical evidence that God has given to us about how he alone is the unique God and he's revealed himself through prophetic scripture? Maybe we don't think it's going to be very convincing, but God seems to think it's pretty convincing, so I would take his opinion on it more than contemporary evangelicals' opinion. So let's take a look then at chapter 34, verse 27. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord." When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. So this effectual self-revelation, they shall know that I am the Lord, is here in the restoration, the comfort of the people of Israel. You see it in the same chapter again in verse 30, this repeated emphasis. They shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And then you see the, all the other examples there, and I think you get the idea. But let's also take a look at the nations, that the nations are going to know. And here you have examples from the end of these chapters, but then also getting into chapters 25 through 32 with an emphasis on the nations, but even after. Really the whole book uh, is giving you examples of the nations also being able to recognize, having that evidence before them, and it producing the effect that they will know who is the true God. So chapter 21, verse 5 is the first example I gave you. Here he's prophesying against Jerusalem, against the land of Israel, and he's going to cut off the flesh uh, that is there. And then he says in verse 5, "...and all flesh shall know that I am the Lord." I have drawn my sword from its sheath, it shall not be sheathed again. So the judgment of God on Israel is not only for Israel's knowledge, but it's for everyone, all flesh, all of humanity, to be able to see. Here God said he was going to judge Jerusalem, and he judged Jerusalem, so God is real. 
But you come over to chapter 25, and you've got the prophecies against Ammon, one of the nations neighboring the nation of Judah. And it says there in verse 5, I will make Rabbah a pasture for camels and Ammon a fold for flocks. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So the prophets have prophesied from ancient times, from the time of Isaiah and other prophets against these nations. And then when it comes to pass, then you know that there is a God in Israel and he is able to predict the future and bring it to pass. So then verse 7 Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples and will make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, Satan has done a lot of work. He's put a lot of time into trying to discredit this evidence for the existence of God. And many scholars who have been influenced by the evil one as the scriptures say, that we too were also once disobedient ourselves and that we were led by the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, as it says in Ephesians 2. Well, the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience has put a lot of effort into trying to discredit the prophetic evidence in the scriptures. And there's a great example of that debate in the book of Ezekiel. And the prophecies of Ezekiel against the city of Tyre as one of the major battlegrounds among those who say the Bible is God's word and those who say, no, the Bible is just a book written by people, not God's word. And getting into those prophecies about the city of Tyre, you'll find out if you get into that, that this is a, a battleground where people are trying to say the Lord is real. And other people are saying, no, the Lord is not real. And so very interesting how Satan recognizes the importance of these issues we also should recognize the importance of them. And then it goes on. I gave you many other examples of the nations knowing. And I put on your hand out there Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, which says, Pharaoh answered to Moses, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So God comes to Pharaoh, Let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord. Who's the Lord? Well, that's the way it is also with the nations during the time of Ezekiel. The word of God comes and people say, well, I don't know the Lord. I don't worship the Lord. Why should I listen to his prophets? Why should I listen to what he says? And God says, well, I'll show you why you should listen to what I say. I'll show you that I am the Lord. Just as Moses showed Pharaoh who the Lord is, so Ezekiel now is showing the nations and Israel who is the Lord when they don't believe in him and they don't think they have to do what he says. They have to learn. You don't mess with God. And so that's the, the theme of God's effectual self-revelation. I thought it was really interesting how it tied in with Pharaoh's question at the very beginning of the Bible as God started to deal with the nations and his people and the judgment and the salvation, all of that tied in to God's self-revelation so that we can know who God is. All right, well, the time we have left, I think we can cover the rest of the themes here. We'll go a little bit more quickly. The third one is a future for all of Israel. Notice that in the book, the messages of the prophet are addressed to the house of Israel. They're not addressed to the house of Judah. Only five times in the book does he reference the house of Judah. Eighty-three times in the book, he references the house of Israel. Remember, 
Ezekiel is an exilic prophet. He began his ministry in exile. He ends his ministry in exile. And in exile, Israel and Judah are now reunited. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are no more. Now you're just Jews. And so the message of the word of God doesn't come to Judah because Judah is no longer an independent sovereign nation by the time Ezekiel is done prophesying, but instead it's to all of the house of Israel, all of the 12 tribes in exile. And so not only are they reunited with each other in exile, but they are also reunited when they are brought back to the land. You know, there's a lot of discussion and debate on what happened to the lost tribes of Israel. You've got Benjamin and Judah. They went into exile, and they came back from exile, and they're the Jews that we know today. I mean, Jew, Judah, you see how it all is. Well, what about the other 10 tribes that went into exile, and then they, they intermarried, and they got lost, and, and now, you know, how is there a future for all of Israel? Well, that's a misunderstanding. There are no lost tribes of Israel. Now, we don't know what tribe all of the Jews are from because the records in the temple that had the genealogies of the Jews was destroyed in 70 AD. So we don't know which tribes the Jews are from. But for those Jews who have continued to maintain their ethnic identity since the time of the destruction of the temple, some of them are, many of them, probably the majority of them are Judeans from the tribe of Judah. Some of them are Levites. Some of them are Benjamites. But there's also other tribes that were living in Judah who were Jews, who were Israelites, from the other tribes. And we have reference to some of those people in the New Testament that this woman was from the tribe of Asher or something like that. And so the 10 tribes were never lost. We've lost the records of their identity. But when the people came back from exile, many of the other Israelites, besides Judah and Benjamin and the Levites, also came back and they were reunited as a nation after the exile. And that's really one of the major themes of the book of Ezekiel, is the reunification of Israel after hundreds of years of being divided politically. One thing God accomplishes in the exile, he says, well, you don't have to be divided politically anymore because you're not a political nation at this time. You lost your national identity, but you can still have your ethnic identity, and I will create you a nation once again, beginning with the return from exile, but ultimately in the coming kingdom that we are still awaiting. So just wanted to bring out the future for all of Israel here as a major theme in the book of Ezekiel. Fourth, the Spirit of God. The focus on Christ is rather small throughout the book. Notice that when it talks about Christ and Ezekiel, you don't have a whole lot of uh, prophecies and pictures of the coming Christ, although I think he might have left one or two out. But one emphasis that is very strong in the book is on the Spirit of God, both in the present working of Ezekiel and his ministry, starting in chapter 1, 2, and 3, as you see there, but then especially when it comes to the new covenant and the future glory of Israel being connected to the pouring out of the Spirit. And I want to show you that in chapter 36. So turn with me also to Ezekiel chapter 36 where you have a very important passage of prophecy concerning the future salvation of Israel and the pouring out of the Spirit. Now, he doesn't specifically mention the New Covenant the way that Jeremiah does, 
But once we get to the New Testament, we find out that this prophecy of the pouring out of the Spirit is connected to the blessing of the New Covenant, and there's a lot written about this in the New Testament. So chapter 36, picking it up there in verse 22, and this is in the restoration section right here, God restoring his people. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, not the house of Judah, the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. So because of Israel's sins, they had made God look bad. And the nations were saying, look, God is so weak, he can't even protect his own city, he can't even protect his own people. You know, the gods of the Babylonians must be much stronger than the God of Israel because they were able to have victory over Israel and Judah. So the people being in exile was a stain on God's name that was used to blaspheme the God of Israel as if he was weak and powerless. And so God's going to act for the sake of his name. I'm going to show people that I'm not weak and powerless. So the nations will know that I am the Lord through your midst when I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And this is where it starts then with the promise. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Interesting to try to figure out how much of that was fulfilled before the coming of Christ, how much of that is yet to be fulfilled. Very interesting. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is a prophecy of the new birth. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and talks about how you're going to dwell in the land, I'll be your God, I'll deliver you from all your uncleanness, and and so on with all these future blessings. So in the midst of this kind of panoramic view of all of Israel's future glory, you have this specific prophecy of the new birth and the pouring out of the Spirit, which are very significant for understanding God's work of salvation that is also related to us. Now, the fifth theme that I want to briefly cover here with you is Israel's sin and God's judgment. Of course, this is like all of the prophets. This wasn't one of the themes that was in the material that I've been using, but I was like, well, obviously this is a theme. I think he didn't have it because it was just so obvious, but I thought it was worth putting there that like the other prophets, one of the major themes of the book is Israel's sin and God's judgment. And as you read through the book of Ezekiel, There are certain chapters, like Ezekiel chapter 16 and Ezekiel chapter 23, that are very graphic in their description of the sin of Israel because throughout the Old Testament, God has likened the idolatry of the people of Israel to the adultery of an unfaithful wife. And so Ezekiel continues to use that metaphor, but he makes it more graphic than any other part of the Old Testament, and so it's kind of an R-rated description of adultery in Ezekiel chapter 16 and Ezekiel 23, which is maybe chapters that young children want to skip over. (laughs) I don't know. Some interesting things in Scripture. But it just shows you how much God hates the sin of idolatry and how much He is offended by the spiritual adultery of his people, okay? 
So let's talk then about the purpose of the book. The purpose is the destruction of Jerusalem, explaining that it's necessary for the glory of God to judge his disobedient people. However, it's also necessary for the glory of God to restore his people in the future, this repentant remnant, to the land and establish them there with a new temple. So the glory of God is a key part of the purpose statement, as it should be. The temple is included there in the purpose statement, which I think is fitting. And then the the backdrop of the destruction and the restoration, the judgment and the restoration, you see how it all ties together in that purpose statement. All right, so very briefly then, the difficulties that are in the text. Should we get into this or should we save it for next week? Let's save it for next week. Ezekiel's a long book. And so it might, you might enjoy having another week. So we're done a couple minutes early. You can greet one another and have some great fellowship.